a simple shout out to all you guys that are here between sickness, vacations, and Oscar and Grecia's wedding today. I'm quite shocked that we had this many people here. So um, I just want to say, well done on your part. However, right now we're getting into the Bible. And so really excited. We are on week uh, five. In fact, we're on week six um, of our sermon series. We were talking about the Ten Commandments. And I've had such an incredibly good time in this particular sermon series. Well, we're talking about something that feels so incredibly um, at the forefront of our cultural moment at times. Maybe, maybe even more so, like maybe five to six years ago, but, but even in our, our culture as just Americans, there's such a, a, an incredibly present reality for this idea of the Ten Commandments. Like we all even kind of know about it. If I just took a gauge right now for you and said like, hey, raise your hand if you know what the Ten Commandments are you would have one response, which is like, yeah, I know what the Ten Commandments are because you've heard it all your life. There's like an old Charleston Heston movie, right, called The Ten Commandments, and you're like, yeah, I've seen that. My dad liked that. My mom liked it. Maybe you're like an old-school film person, and you like it, right? So there's this idea. And then on top of that, maybe you've seen these cultural narratives that really tell us that the Ten Commandments should be this way of life, should be this thing that we adhere to. And so they try and put them at the Capitol steps. They try and put them in public spaces. And then there become this incredibly big argument about what their place is in our society and whether they should be, whether they should be supported or, or promoted in these kind of public squares. What does that look like? So there's such a cultural relevance to these ideas. And yet, oftentimes, because we are, we're approaching them with such a cultural lens, the reality is that they're theologically based. It means that they're actually not meant to tell us something about our culture. They're barely meant to tell us something about ourselves. The main goal of these 10 commandments is to tell us something about God. And through understanding God, then we have the ability to understand our culture. Then we have the ability to understand ourselves. And when we completely miss this, this idea, we completely miss the first step of understanding that these are about God. We try to make them about who we are try to make them about whether we can be saved by them. We try to make them about whether someone is a good person. We try to make them about whether something is a good culture, whether something is a good society. We lose the true meaning of them, and therefore what God intended to give us through them. We've been working through this idea almost every single week, and, and it's been really, really fun because every week we're getting to really kind of take the curtain back and, and see how each commandment means something a little bit different than what we originally thought. So we had, I, I'm not going to go through all of them. I want to review them, but I don't have nearly enough time for that. I think the favorite one that I've seen so far through my study and through our time together has probably been the parent one, where that one was kind of like everyone thinks it's about like being like, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. When in reality, once you investigate the context and the history of that, it's more about the message of the gospel going out, making disciples, and displaying for the world the right way to live, living in the context of who God is, serving him, loving him, loving others. And that being like almost a call to mission in the idea of saying, hey, Honor your father and your mother. Very different than what we hear and what we think when we say, hey, say yes, sir, and be obedient. And yet that's just a great small example of what's happening in these commandments when we understand the world they were written in, who they were written about. What seems so straightforward tends to have so much more meaning and enlightens us in so many more ways. Today what we're going through is we're going through uh, do not murder. Um, do not murder. It's a pretty good. Is anybody? I'm not going to ask if you murdered somebody. But... Let me just by a show of hands, does everybody agree that we shouldn't murder? Yeah, I, I could have. I probably could have guessed that. I probably could have. We probably could have got a lot more people in this room and asked that same question, and I think it would have been a universal response. Yeah, no, that's not cool, right? Mur murdering is bad. 
That would have been the universal response. And the thing is, what's tricky about this specific verse and this specific commandment is that when we see do not murder, it's one of those ones that really all of us could agree with. And, and yet there is such an explicit law in the commandments to say don't murder. Don't murder. Everyone generally agrees with this. But yet God will go so far within these ten ways that he's trying to show himself to specifically say do not murder someone. What's going on there? What's happening there? And what I want to do is I want to go ahead and jump right in to start thinking about this together because what's, what's happening here, I believe, is the second part. Is, is really, it, we're jumping into the second part of the commandments here. While the first part is focused on the idea of loving God, right, the second part, the second six, command, or the six commandments that come after the first four, so the six sets, right? And, and here in the sixth command, we have this idea that, that God is starting to focus on how he, not just you should love people, but how he loves people. That the idea of do not murder is not just the idea of understanding that you shouldn't murder one another, but that God infinitely loves people. The fifth commandment turns the idea of, uh, of loving others really into this, this statement where we start to see God in light of him as a giver of life and not as a taker of life. Now, in order to really start getting into the nitty-gritty, as my friend, uh, never mind, uh, but into the nitty-gritty, what we're trying to get at is we're going to first start by understanding what murder is, okay? Uh, I'm not going to lie. For whatever reason, I feel really sporadic right now. Y'all are, I feel sporadic. I probably sound a little sporadic. So I'm going to take a second. I'm going to breathe so I can effectively communicate to you for the rest of this time. Whew. All right. Okay. So what is murder? In order to understand what this verse is talking about, we've got to understand what the heck murder is. And it may not be a surprise to you. It doesn't take a seminary degree or even much of a research into the Hebrew. Find out that murder means murder. That this particular verse, there's not like some weird thing that I can pull out and try to like unveil the secret meaning in the Hebrew word. And I know we all get a kick out of that. At least some of us get a kick out of that. And then like we put it up here and then we... You know, you've seen that slide before where it's the big one right here and then it has like the little definition here. And you know once that slide comes up, it's fixing to get fun. We don't got that today. And that primarily is because murder in this situation truly means murder. It has this connotation of taking life. And in this specific context, the object uh, and the actual, the actual murderer are both pretty much people. And so the idea do not murder is specifically the commandment for, for you not to take the life of another person accidentally, intentionally, in a premeditated way. And that's, that's really it. <coughs> and here's the thing. Again, that seems very straightforward. All of us would agree with that. But I think that is also a part of what's challenging about this text is that all of us would agree with that. Universally, in the human ex experience, in the human history, that has never, ever been an issue. It has never been an issue where we sometimes say, you know what, actually... I'm going to cast caution to the wind. And universally, we agree. Murder's not bad. That never happens. The history of humanity, that's never been the case. Quite literally, has never happened. In fact, it's so pure and it's so, it's so inherent and instinctive that murder is bad. All right, we're in. I'm going to let y'all do that real quick. Now we're going to turn attention this way and we're going to keep going. Um, 
It's so instinctive that murder is bad that when it happens, you don't even need a law to tell you that murder is bad because, in fact, the very feelings of vengeance and anger and injustice that spur up in every person, particularly those that are affected negatively, who have someone they love be murdered or whose life has been taken from them, those very feelings that rage up themselves testify, this is bad. This is bad. As an example, my mom's family uh, is uh, Apache, Native American, um, and they belong to a tribe called the Mescalero tribe in, in New Mexico. One of the most famous Apache warriors that uh, has ever been known is who? Starts with a G. That's okay. I'm the Apache here, so y'all need to know it. Geronimo. Geronimo. Geronimo was, a, was an Apache warrior that was specifically known for how violent he was. He was violent in his attacks. He was violent in how he would kill people. He was a violent individual. And oftentimes, it was noted that the violence didn't come in a moment. The violence was something that seemed to stick with him all the days of his life. It was fueled by an anger and a bitterness and a vengeance that seemed to emanate all through his body and all through his mind and all through his heart. And it came out probably most dramatically when he was in the attack where this violence and just, sh just gruesome ways of killing people would come out. Now I might ask you, what do you, think, what do you think drove that? What do you think drove that violence, that bitterness, that vengeance? What do you think, what do you think it was? Drama, yeah? So you could maybe point toward a broader idea that like the Native American experience has like this, this idea of like land being taken and kind of their whole world being upended. But in his own book, he doesn't actually pinpoint that specific idea. The source of his anger, vengeance, and his bitterness actually comes from a moment in 1861 where a colonel, and I want to make sure I get the colonel's name right so that his name lives on how it should. Colonel Jose Maria Carrasco uh, launched an attack on Geronimo's village. And in that attack, in a matter of merely 10 minutes, Geronimo's wife, three children, and mother were all murdered like that. He wasn't there. And that moment cemented in his heart such a deep anger and bitterness that it drove his violence and his anger toward the world for the rest of his life. So his dying breaths, when the only things he could utter were, were, were moments of anger and, and bitterness and just desires for vengeance. That's what came up in him. That's what happened by, by killing, by murder. That's also true in the Bible. You don't really need a law to tell you that, that's, that murder is bad in the Bible. In fact, at the very beginning of the story, we have the testimony that murder is bad. Right? In Genesis 4, Cain and Abel, a lot of y'all have heard that story, where Cain is jealous of his brother Abel, and because of that, he kills his brother Abel, and when he kills him, God visits Cain and says, the, the blood of your brother is crying out to me from the ground. Hear it. Then he curses Cain to wander the earth for the rest of his life. And so here's the thing. Killing has historically been bad. It's historically been seen as bad. This law, the, the commandment here, does not somehow magically make murder wrong. The history and experience of human beings at any point in life and from the beginning of the Bible all indicate and point toward the reality that murder is wrong. And so the question then should be asked, why is it that there is such an explicit law and commandment not to murder? If it's so clear that murder is wrong, and it's been clear through the entirety of the story, and we can testify from our own experience and our own knowledge and our own fears that murder is wrong, 
why would God so clearly say, don't murder? I think that's a fair, I think that's a good question. I think the first reality is that people need very explicit directions. I think that's the first and simple idea, right, is that we've all been in a situation where there's a little bit of ambiguity in something that someone asks you to do, and you get to the grocery store, and, you know, your wife, your spouse, your husband, whatever, it's like, get carrots, and then you're looking at the wall of carrots, like, which carrots? And then all of a sudden, you're like, I don't know what to do, and then you're, like, texting, and you're like, hey, what carrot should I get? Uh, it's like, dude, just carrots. I don't care, right? So, so we've all had that moment. We've also all had that moment where it's like, hey, how much wiggle room do I have in this specific idea that you're giving me? Do I have, like, is there a five-mile-an-hour little bumper between 65, so can I go 70? Can I go 75? Right? I know the regular law, but what is it that I can get away with in the context of this law that makes me still not guilty? And so we, we understand that. But the thing is, um, I think there's more to it than just that. There's something more to it. Remember that one of the biggest mistakes we make is that we, and we talked about this last week, is that when we read the Bible, oftentimes we read the Bible from the perspective that it's about us. Well, really the Bible is about God. And this, again, is really important when we're reading something like the commandments because we can read a simple idea like do not murder, and when the Bible's about us, all I do is pick it up and go, okay, I shouldn't murder. Pretty simple. It's straightforward. I don't have any, any concerns about that. Yet when we, when we do what we should do in making the Bible about God, right, the meaning that the Bible speaks to us about is about God. And when, when it's telling us something that seems so simple like don't murder, when we have God in a central role, and actually starts to say something different. This particularly stands out in a moment like this where when we, read this when we read this particular verse and the perspective is being about us, right, the idea to not kill is really easy. But when we read this from the perspective that's showing us something about God, I think there does tend to be a lot more to understand here. And this is particularly why in Matthew 5, Jesus takes this specific commandment and teases it out really well. In Matthew 5, chapter, 20, uh, chapter 5, 21 through 22, is this on or no? No? Okay. Y'all are going to have to just roll with me then. Okay, never mind. It is on. Then you're going you're to look up there. Uh, in verse 21, it says, oh, dang. Okay, no, no. Y'all can't be doing that. Never mind. Um, that was an inside joke from before the service started, and I, I regret that joke right away. Um, so Matthew 5, verse 21 starts like this. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's actually quite scary. Because it takes this idea of murder and it expands it out toward a bunch of different angry dispositions and angry responses. And then, in essence, communicates you will be held accountable in the exact same way for these responses and for these feelings as you will for the physical action of murder. <coughs> You're telling me that if I, now here's the thing, this is why this is really important. Because legitimately what's happening here is that Jesus is putting us in a position where we're seeing ourselves in the position of having to take the commandment and go, oh, I don't need to murder. And he's trying to reduce it down and force us to deal with the main issue. He's forcing us to deal with the issue that's at hand. He's forcing us to deal with the issue that's in front of us. Because here's the reality. When a lot of us read that idea, we, the idea of specifically not murdering, we approach it and go, okay, so I don't need to murder. And that means if I do murder, I'll be punished. And if I'm punished, I won't get what I want. And so the goal becomes not to not murder, but rather to not be punished. 
And that's actually what's happening here. If you take a look at this verse, when Jesus specifically says, you have heard it said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. The reality is if you go back to Exodus 20, verse 13, there's no specific speaking about judgment. There's actually just the command not to murder. But what Jesus understands is that when we fail to read the Bible correctly, what we do is say, okay, I don't want to murder people, not because I want to bring life, but rather because I want to avoid being punished. When I'm at the central stage, when I'm in the center of how I read the Bible, the Bible becomes nothing more than a set of commands I have to do in order to get what I want. And if I fail to get one of those commands and I'm punished, then I don't get what I want. And if the Bible is about me getting what I want, then the heaven I'm seeking is not the heaven he's giving. The heaven I'm seeking is the heaven I'm creating now. The heaven I'm creating in front of me. I go out in my life and I try to work as hard as I can and I try to do everything my boss tells me so that I can get a raise. I do everything the bank tells me so that I can have good credit and buy a house and a car. I do everything that God tells me so that God can bless me in all the ways that I want. And all my life I'm working and working and working and working because I think if I can just craft enough heaven in front of me, man, I will have everything that I need. And God is a central part of that because he's a central part of providing me the heaven that I want both here and the heaven that I want later. And what ends up happening is when that's the way we live and the heaven that we dream of is only what's in front of us, the heaven that we dream of is only in our lives, then what ends up happening is when we read a verse like do not murder, it becomes, okay, so you're telling me I shouldn't murder so I don't be punished. Then the goal is not to bring life. The goal is to not be punished. And let me be honest with you, friend. I would venture to say that if we were being honest with each other, you were being honest with you, I was being honest with me, and we were being honest together, that that's the way we live a lot of our Christian life. So you're telling me not to do this. Okay, then I won't do it so I won't be punished. Oh, you're telling me to do this. Okay, then, then I'm going to do that so that I won't be punished. Friend, that is so incredibly laborious. It, it's, it's a heavy burden. Because all your life, all you're thinking about is what's around the next corner. And whether the God that says he's actually merciful and gracious and kind is actually just a ticking time bomb waiting for you to fail. And the moment that you fail, his punishment comes down swiftly and angrily. And then everything that you had hoped for in the heaven that you're trying to make is gone like that. That's, that's the way a lot of us actually feel. That's the way a lot of us actually live. That's how we live. You, some, I'm be very honest, even in a room this size. Right, there's some of us that are here right now, and there's a part of our heart that did not come to thoroughly enjoy God, but to thoroughly satisfy God. Those are two different things. And some of us came here to say, I want to enjoy you and know you and love you. And some of us put on our pants and our shirt and said, I want to appease you and make you happy so that I can get what I want. That's the reality in this room today, and that's the reality of some of the people that Jesus was speaking to. And that's exactly why he provided his commandment and then said, I know that you've heard it said, don't murder, because on those who are murdered, there will be judgment. But friend, I want to just be, want to encourage you that there's so much more to God. There's so much more that God wants to show you. There's so much more that God wants to provide to you. There's so much more that God wants you to experience. There's so much more that God wants you to do. You're meant to understand the depth of God's love and care and then to internalize that and to go into the world and to serve and love people through caring and loving them as you experience God's love and care. But when everything in our lives is about our own pleasure, our own convenience, our own 
heaven, all of a sudden, all I need to figure out is how to avoid God's punishment and I can keep building my own heaven. I just have to avoid God being mad at me. And here's the thing, at this point, I really struggle not to think of you as a kid and as me of a kid. I struggle not to think of my own children. There's some of you in here, legitimately, you had a great childhood. Your parents gave you an incredible example of who God is. Like you came home and someone was like, hey, how was school today? What'd you learn? Your homework together. And now let's have dinner together. What's everyone thankful for? What was everyone's best part of your day? What was the worst part of your day? Let's pray about that. Like that's, if that's you, praise God. You're probably listening to this part of what I'm saying and you're like, I don't experience that at all, bro. I'll be in here like, God, you love me and I love you. And you're just like happy. But I know there's a lot of us in here that didn't have that experience. In fact, if there was a, well, you could probably say, hey, my parents loved me. This position that you may describe them having is one more of tolerance. Not that that was their feeling, but that their, their feeling may have been love, but that their disposition towards you may have been more tolerant. And that the even keel, right, the, the, the baseline for your experience with your parents was probably that they tolerated you, they were around, they were present, and when something really great happened, they celebrated you, and they were maybe a little bit affectionate. Some of us in here are longing for someone to be like, I'm proud of you. Like that, just the, it, but you just never got to the heights of someone being able to go, I'm proud of you, because it was more just like, hey, man, all right, good job. And then if, if we messed up, though, then anger could come, disappointment could come, and so your idea of God, maybe my Maybe not my idea of God, but, but a lot of us in here, maybe we're wrestling with thinking that God is just even keel. He's tolerating us. The moment we fail, maybe he's disappointed, but, but we have to really give it our all and perform a lot in order for God to look and be like, great job. I'm proud of you. So that's how we work. We try to avoid his displeasure, keep him tolerant, and then every once in a while we go out of our way to show incredible things where he's going to go, great job. I'm proud of you. And that's how we read the whole Bible. That's how we see our whole Christian walk. That's how we see our whole relationship with God. When the Bible is pointing us to so much more. That tolerance. Sharing with us this vision of God loving you. God seeing you. God caring for you. That he's overwhelmingly pleased to rush to your aid. Not disappointed that you failed that he's overwhelmingly proud to call you his son and his daughter, that he sees you and his heart jumps, not he sees you and he's trying to figure out whether he should be proud of you or disappointed in you, that every moment of your life from when you go to sleep, from every moment of your life when you wake up to the moments where you think I really messed up and the moments you think I'm killing it in every one of those moments that this God is not going, hey, you figure it out and let me know whether I should be disappointed or approving and rather God is overwhelmingly in love with you. Friend, you're, you're loved today. You're loved. And hear me, I can sound like a broken record because I feel like I say some of these things every week, but I think it's because you need to hear some of these things every week. Because the reality of your life and my life is that the moment we walk out of here, we end up going into a world that tells you what you do will dictate how much I love you. And then you start to project that onto God when the reality God keeps trying to invite you into a world that says, no matter who you are, I love you because that's who I am. And now why don't you take that and show it to the world? But when we're reading the Bible in these ways that say, just tell me what I need to do. Tell me where I need to go. Tell me how I need to act. We start to rob the Bible of its 
potency. We start to rob the Bible of what it's trying to accomplish. And that's what, that's what really our first point is. It took a lot of time for that first point, but I think I'm trying to get you where we're, we're trying to go. The first point, is this going to be up? If it is, just go ahead. Um, first point, the Bible isn't about you. It's about God. But God deeply loves you. And that's what I hope, I, I'm, I hope you're grasping that through the course of this sermon series, is that I want you to see that the Bible's not about you. The Bible's about God. And when we read it as it being about God, it starts to show us so much more of who God is, and it starts to really give us good insight as to who we are. But if we read the Bible as about God, and it's about an angry person who's just trying to make sure or figure out whether he can approve of you or be disappointed in you, you'll deeply miss the points that the Bible's trying to make. Because the Bible is about God, it's not about you, but the main characteristic the Bible shares about God is that he's madly and deeply in love with you. That's what the Bible's about. It's about a God who deeply and passionately loves you. That's who we're reading about today. That's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5 when, he, when he's saying, you've heard it said, don't murder. But then he continues on and he actually he handles that part first. I want you to get a different perspective on this commandment. But then he continues on through Matthew 5 with something that I think is really powerful. He continues on starting in verse 22. Actually, we're just going to read verse 22. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. Again, this all seems incredibly harsh. This all seems incredibly scary because, in essence, Jesus, again, is saying that if you're overly angry, if you're disrespectful or you're mean, you're going to be held accountable as if you murdered someone. And, and that's intense. That's intense. But here's the thing. This is, again, I mentioned this before. In this text, Jesus isn't trying to tell you, hey, you can't be mean or lose your temper or else you're going to go to hell. If that was the case, you'd already be in hell. Is it hot in here? I'm sorry. Well, that can't be it. It can't be that Jesus is saying, you lose your temper, you're going to hell. He be in hell. In essence, is he saying that? This is where things start to get a little bit challenging, I think. Because rather than understanding it just from the perspective of saying, you're telling me what to do, do not murder, and then if I do murder, I'm going to be punished. So if I want to get what I want, I need to avoid murdering people. Jesus strips all of it away and says, if you're mean to someone, as if you murdered them. So is he trying to again highlight murder? No, I think he's trying to whittle away so much of the ambiguity that all you're left with is the opposite. If, if really you're accountable for everything of disrespect, murder, and that is outside of God's will, then the only thing left is to look and say, how can I love? What is the opposite of this? Because apparently if I do anything that, that pains someone, held accountable by God, and what am I to do? And here's the thing. This is an idea that specifically is rooted in what's called the image of God. You guys have, some of you have heard this. Some of you are working through this idea, but it's, it's this idea that traces its roots back to Genesis 126. It will be on the board where, where, in essence, in creation, God says, I'm going to make people. I'm going to make them in our image, in my image, in the image of God. And there's a lot of theories behind what this specifically is about. 
Some of you guys have heard people say, oh, well, it's about the fact that, that human beings can make intelligent decisions, and it's that we can have, like, the ability to wade through what's right and what's wrong. But one of my favorite tests for this idea is actually found by a man named Dr. Michael Heiser. And it may not be in there. It may just be in my notes. But uh, the late Michael Heiser, he actually passed away just a few weeks ago. And he said of the image of God that the idea of God's image has to be true of all people everywhere across time. That the image of God has to be true of all people everywhere across all time. So does that mean that everyone that you've ever known, does he have the intelligence to make good decisions? No. Do you know people that struggle to identify what the right thing and the wrong thing is? I used to work at a, a group home for people, for adults particularly, that had severe neurological disabilities. I can tell you for sure that I met several people there that could not truly decipher between right and wrong, and it wasn't that you could just drill it into them. It wasn't that you could just beat it into them. It wasn't that you could just argue it into them, explain it into them. They truly were not capable. Maybe that's not it either. As we whittle away every single option, trying to figure out what the image of God can mean if it has to be true about all people, everywhere, across all time, Dr. Heiser landed at one thing, just what God says. Just what God says. I think that the creation of everything, God specifically looked at people, said these are my image bearers. Whether they make the right choice, they make the wrong choice, whether they do the right thing, whether they do the wrong thing, whether they're capable of it, whether they're not capable of it, whether they're tall, whether they're short, whether they're skinny, whether they're fat, whether they got dark skin, whether they got light skin, straight hair, curly hair, people will be the ones who bear my image. It's like the first adoption that takes place in the Bible. It has nothing to do with what you do, nothing to do with what you're capable of, it has everything to do with God saying you're mine. This creation is mine. I've designated it as valuable. I've given it my image. Therefore, it's valuable to me. Therefore, it's valuable in all the world. Right away, two things happen. The first thing is right away, people are endowed with dignity and respect. Right away. That the people around you, whether they have failed, whether they have succeeded, whether they're sometimes mean, or whether they're nice, people, as a result of God's adoption of humanity in his image, are worthy of dignity and respect. That doesn't mean that there's an absence of something called justice. Clearly, we were reading through a lot where people are held accountable. And through the Bible, people are held accountable for their actions. But even that idea of justice in the Bible most often is not linked to vengeance, but it's most often linked to the idea of God restoring things and making things right. Why? Because he deeply loves this thing called people that he's given his image to. He said, you are in my image. You're mine. You're my children. So even when you fail, my hope for justice is that I would restore you, not that I would destroy you. You're mine. All of you. So here's the thing, friends. What does that mean for you? I think the first thing that it means is that, again, you're worthy of, like, honor. You're worthy of respect. I used to think that you had to live in an environment like Dove Springs to know what it felt like to be dishonored by your parents. I used to think that it, it had to be like you were a, 
neglected child from a mom who was out till all hours of the night or a dad who was neglectful or had a drinking problem, neither of which were my parents. A lot of my friends lived like that. It used to be that I would read texts like this and I'd go, man, my heart bleeds for places like Dove Springs because I know places like Dove Springs are littered with people that feel like they don't deserve honor and respect because they've never been shown honor or respect. Then I started meeting people from middle-class families. And man, I'm 100% not sure if I would rather change places with my homeboys that had parents not there, if I would rather change places with some of my friends now who sound like they have parents that basically look at them and were like, hey, if you get an A, I love you. Uh, that's my exchange with you. And the moment a B came across, and I was, I was a B guy, if you know what I'm saying. Took ownership over my Bs. Mom, I got a B. That if I came home with a B, know that my parents would look at me and say, Dude, I expect more of you. I'm disappointed in you. Try harder. You're capable of more. And friends, as, as simple as that sounds, the trace elements of telling somebody the honor and respect that you deserve is directly linked with what you do, it's all built on little moments like that in little souls and little lives as, as we come up. Moments that tell us, I'm, I'm a, I deserve honor sometimes, but I don't deserve honor all the time. I deserve respect sometimes, but I don't deserve respect all the time. I, have res I deserve respect when things are going good. I don't deserve respect when things are going bad. And all of a sudden, you have a bunch of people walking around thinking, if I failed, I deserve abuse and dishonor and disrespect. Instead of going, no matter how I failed, there's certain things and certain lines that you cannot cross with me because I deserve inherently honor, respect, and dignity. That's what's, that's what's happening here. That Jesus is painting a world in which you, by the very nature of your lungs breathing, skin feeling, or your body and soul and mind and, your, and heart existing, are endowed with the right of respect. The right of dignity. Again, we're held accountable for our actions, but in your life, you are endowed with the right to be respected. So in your life, if there are people that disrespect you, if there are people that dishonor you, if there are people that abuse you, people that take advantage of you, if there are people that look at you and assume they can have whatever they want from you because you particularly are weak or they don't think you are valuable or they don't think you are worthy, friend, I want to passionately, with everything I have, refute that idea and tell you that as God made you and as God formed you and as God knew you and as God knows you and as God knows who you will be and God knows who he's going to make you over the course of the next few years at every stage of your life, at every failure and every success because he has made you and because you are his. In each one of those moments, you are actually endowed and worthy of dignity and respect and honor. Can you be held accountable for what you've done? Absolutely, and you should be, so should I. Even in those moments, because of God, because of you, not because of me, but because of God, you are worthy of dignity, respect, and honor.
So hold that. Believe it. When the voice of those who tell you that you are not worthy of that, rise up. Cling to words like you're made in his image. Cling to words like, hey, you've heard it said that if you murder somebody, you're going to be held accountable. Look at all these other ways people are going to be held accountable. Because, Because God loves you, he sees you, and he made you. You're in his image, and therefore you are worthy of dignity honor for now here's the thing that's the first part but i think there's a second part now if we can't put genesis 126 back up here there's a second part to this that god makes people in his image and he says yeah you're in my image and therefore because i've adopted you you're mine you're worthy of respect and honor uh, and dignity however from there he says according to our likeness they will what's that word rule and so, yes, yes, we're, we're made in God's image and worthy of dignity, but then the job that God gives us is to rule. That the image bearers that he, he adopts, that he brings in, that he claims and, and declares are his, are not just there to be loved by him, but are there to be shaped by him, and therefore to show him to the rest of the world. And so the ruling class of the world in God's creative order is not just governors or presidents, but it's every person that's been made in his image. That every person made in his image looks at creation as a whole and says, I'm going to care for this thing. As God himself loves and cares for me, likewise, I'll internalize that, turn around, go into the world, and love and care for it. Therefore, when we look at Jesus looking and saying, hey, anybody that, that doesn't just murder somebody, but anybody that that disrespects people, that's overly and and unnecessarily mean to people, that calls them a fool and calls them out of their name and pushes them away and makes them outsiders or marginalized or treats them little or judges them based on how much money they have or how much money they don't have or judges them based on the color of their skin or anything else, right? Each one of those little bitty moments, God would look, Jesus particularly, would look at this moment and say, it's not just about the fact that you're not supposed to do that, but it's about the fact that you're supposed to do the opposite. It's about the fact that you, each and every one of us in this room, your life as someone that is made in God's image is meant to go into the world and to not make marginalized people, but to bring people together, to form a community of people that are loved and seen and cared for, that, 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 that understand that they are worthy of dignity and honor and respect, that understand how deeply they're loved, that when the world around us continues to fracture and tell people that they're worth little and tell people that they're worth as much as they can produce, the people of God rule the world by saying you're loved, you're cared for, you're seen, you're restored, you're his, he's yours. Come, taste and see. That's the goal. So everything Jesus is doing here is helping us see how much you're valuable, how much he loves you, so that it can empower you in order to go out and show and teach people how much others are valuable. He loves them. What's happening here? That's what was happening in Exodus. It's just people took it and said, so so don't murder, right? If I don't murder, you won't punish me. In reality, it was don't murder. Go out and give life. Bears and agents of life, agents of death and murder. That's what's actually happening here. The Bible is about us, as it's about us. So, so don't murder, and then I won't be punished. So much more happening, so much more beautiful, so much more meaning, so much more impact. Jesus did this perfectly. Right? Jesus does this absolutely perfectly. He goes into the world. He's taking people that are caught in adultery. He's taking 
he literally is walking around, and religious leaders are like, this guy is a friend of sinners. And while they're like, this is outrageous, Jesus is like, why is this outrageous? This is literally what you were made to do, what I'm made to do. My, my earthly body here was brought into the world, and I took on human flesh so that I could fulfill the will of God for humanity. So I'm going to go be friends with sinners. And the people that are sick, I'm going to bring healing to them. And the people that are in need, I'm going to provide for them. And the people that need to know of the depths of God's love, I'm going to love them. And the people that feel like they are on the outside, I'm going to bring them in. This is exactly what I'm going to do. He is completely embodying the idea of do not murder, not just by saying I'm going to let you live, but by saying I'm going to bring you to life. And now you and me, while we have taken life from others, Jesus, who perfectly gives life, goes to the cross and exchanges his life for death. Exchanges his life for death. Not just so that the dead could be made alive. Yes. Yes and amen. You who were dead are now made alive. But likewise, so that those who used to bring death could now be endowed with life that the spirit of God would live in us, that life itself would live in us, and therefore we would take life to those around us. That's why we meet in an in, in inner city, low-income neighborhood in a school, again, with the, with the blue and white walls that y'all know my thoughts on. That's why we meet right here and exist right here, not because I want to say let's get away and stow away life, but because the vision I hope you have for your life is not one that you stow away life and let people live, but that you would recognize the life that you've been given, the love that you've received, the positive affirmation that you get when we're here in this Bible, when we're here in this sermon, when you're here on this Sunday, is not meant to store up and make you spiritually fat, but friend, because you were so deeply loved, you were meant to go out into each and every community that you're a part of, whether in Dove Springs or wherever you live, and to take that love and to let it transform the communities around you. It's literally why our mission statement is refuge exists to glorify God by making disciples that shape their communities with the love of Jesus. Because my honest, honest belief is that every Sunday what you receive in me being up here and obnoxiously yelling that Jesus loves you is that you shouldn't walk away going, I feel good, but that you would walk away going, man, my life is important. My life has meaning. My life has substance. And that meaning and substance and value is not meant for you to sit and just feel good, but it's meant for it to be passed along like a ripple of water moves through a silent and still lake and brings life to it. So your life is meant to be a drop in the pool of wherever you call home, wherever you, wherever you lay your head, whatever community you're a part of, so that life would be brought to it. That's what you're called to do. That God has made you for that purpose, that he's given his life for that purpose, and now he's endowed you with the love you need to go make that happen. You don't need to be equipped up and down till Sunday and Saturday in order to do that. All you need to do is go out there and just love somebody. Love them the way you know how. Learn to do it better. It don't start tomorrow, it starts today. It starts the moment you looked and heard the obnoxious sound of my voice saying that you deserve honor and respect and love, it starts in that moment to turn around and say, that must mean they deserve honor and respect and love. I'm way over on time, but I just kind of don't care at the moment. I honestly and humbly believe that that's true. And I honestly and humbly believe that that's what you're called to. 
And I honestly and humbly believe that if you actually believe that, not if you heard it and tried to apply it for five seconds, but that if you grabbed that and you just shoved it into the face of every just demonic thought that came and told you you were unworthy or that you were incapable or that you didn't deserve honor or X, Y, and Z, that your life would look radically different. Not because you've changed so much about yourself, but because you've just grown to know and live in the love of God. That's it. He does the rest. I think that's what do not murder is about. I think that's what God has a vision for when he says don't murder. So much more than just don't take life, but receive life and give life to others. A couple of takeaways for today. Uh, first one, I think it's going to be up here. Loved people love people. Heard it said that hurt people hurt people. Love people love people. So understand God's love for you. I am, I am sure that right now there is, while it could be encouraging to hear me scream about God loving you for 40 minutes, that there can still be an insecurity about how you go out and do that. I understand. Um, I want to tell you this, man, I don't want to say that's not important. I just don't think it's as important. Because when you go out there and try to love somebody and they respond weirdly, if you are assured of how much God loves you, if you're confident and secure in that reality, your response won't be, what? <laughs> It'll be, okay, I'm, I'm messing up here somewhere, or this person's hurting, but let me try to figure out something else. But that only happens when you're secure. It only happens when you're confident. It only happens when you're actually walking in this truth, and you don't feel like in that moment, the only love you're going to get is the love that comes back after you've given it. So when you go out there, understand God's love, right? Spend some time doing that. Remind yourself of it. Now, I'm not saying you have to read a chapter of the Bible every day or that you got to read the Bible in a year or anything else. I'm saying that to spend the time the way you need to, understanding God's love for you. Second one, and I've been barking, this, uh, barking up this tree for two weeks now, um, seek relational reconciliation where possible. I understand that's not possible for everybody. I understand that there are actual places where a division in relationship is not just right, it's necessary. And maybe those are places where abuse is taking place. Maybe those are places where you don't feel safe. Maybe there are places where it's clear that the love you're providing specifically is not the love that person needs. They're going to need that love from, from a church somewhere. From You just got to pray that the Lord intersects their life with someone that can show them that. But it's clear that you're not going to play that role. And hear me, that's okay. You're not meant to save the day. You're meant to follow the Savior. So that's your job ain't to make everything right. Your job is to just follow the one that's making it right. Sometimes that means needing some space. But where you have some divisions relationally at the time, at the moment, seek relational reconciliation. And the last one is extremely practical. Uh, just pick five ways to bless people this week. Just pick five ways to bless people. It is so, I think for so many of us, we can listen to sermons like this, and it feels encouraging. But the thing is, the muscle of blessing others has atrophied so much that we don't know how to do it when we leave. It's like an atrophied muscle where you think, yeah, I want to bless people. You go out, you think about it for Sunday afternoon, and then by Monday, it's gone. And I'm letting you know that that is a muscle. We talked about it last week. It's a muscle. It has to be built up. It has to be worked out. And therefore, if you just pick five simple ways to bless someone this week, just start there. 
if you were at our, our, our summer night deal a couple of weeks ago, last whatever it was, uh, and you had that little chart that had circles, and you picked four people that are local to you in your spheres of influence, and you just said, hey, these are people that I want to bless and get to know more, share community with in some way. Pick some of those people. Just pick those people and say, hey, here's four people. That's four right there. Buy someone a coffee at Starbucks, and you're good to go. All right, so just pick five ways to bless someone this week and start working that muscle out in the event that it's a bit atrophy. I'm over on time because I got a little hot there in the middle. But uh, it's my prayer that we could see something so simple as, as do not murder and see it for all it's worth. Not just a way to say, hey, don't do this so you won't be punished, but invitation to receive. Give life in accordance with God's deep affection and love for you. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time. In your word, thank you, Father, we had the opportunity to come to it. Thank you, Father, that in your infinite wisdom, you give three words, do not murder. Hebrew is more like two words. And yet they unveil so much about who you are. Again, not simple instructions that demand something from us, lest you be upset, but invitations to understand the depths of your love so that we can therefore go out and shape the world as you always intended us to, as you've always called us to. So, Father, my prayer in this room today is that as we said on the first slide, that we would understand your love, that we would accept it, that we would walk in it, love it, that if there's walls built up right now that are resisting the urge to be known by you, that are resisting the calling be loved by you, that still want to put up barriers of whether we have earned something, barriers of whether we're worthy of something, barriers of whether we deserve something. Holy Spirit, I just want to ask that by your power that you would knock that mess down, that you would tear it away, that it would be left in absolute rubble, and that the, the ruins of it would be the only thing that could possibly be identified in these people's lives for the rest of their life and that the result would be the overflowing outpouring of your love into their hearts and into their minds and into their lives for the rest of our lives until we're ushered into glory and we see you face to face and all the, all the, all the ideas become truth, Father. Thank you for the work of your spirit today. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the love that we receive from you and thank you for the love that was sent out of your way. Love you, thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.